Today's scripture is from James chapter or, uh, James 1, uh, verses 2 through 8. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. Rene Descartes, the famous French philosopher, you might remember, he said, I think, therefore I am. He also said, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. He's saying, if you really want to find truth, you should doubt everything at least once. Would you agree with that? I don't know Descartes well, I did not study philosophy, but I suspect his point was that if we don't take a moment to doubt, we aren't really choosing to believe things, we're just simply taking what's handed to us without a second thought. Doubting and then choosing what we believe, it strengthens our belief, it helps our faith grow, it solidifies our resolve, and in that way our doubt helps us. Think about this, if you're married, Surely there's been at least one time in your marriage where you have thought, do I still want to be married to this person? Or if you have a best friend, perhaps you've had a moment to ask, are we going to be best friends forever, or is something changing? Maybe you had those thoughts because you just had a fight, or maybe you thought it because you happened upon a picture of yourself with an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend, or maybe you thought about because you were daydreaming about what it might be like to win the lottery. So you think, do I want to be married to this person? Or is this person my best friend still? It's a question of doubt. It's a way to doubt, just even ever so slightly, your marriage vows or your friendship. And hopefully, in that moment that you had reason to ask yourself that question, quickly the, came, the answer came to you, yes. As a matter of fact, yes, I do want to be married to this person. I'm so glad that other relationship didn't work out. Or yes, I, I want to be married to this person, or I do want to be best friends with this person. I, I'm going to make amends for that fight we just had. Or, or yes, I do want to be married to this person. It would be so fun to spend all that lottery moment, money together. Right? When we say yes after our moment of doubt, our commitment's actually stronger than if we had never doubted at all. This is one important way that doubt is the companion to faith. Just a quick reminder what I've said over the last several weeks, that doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is certainty. Certainty. If you're certain, there's no room for faith. There's no need for faith. It's when we can't be certain that we need the strength of faith to help us believe. So doubt comes as a companion with faith, crossing over that bridge with us from unbelieving to believing. 
We've been talking about doubt for the last three weeks, exploring the important hurdles that the Christian faith, uh, that in the Christian faith, raise doubts for all kinds of people. And hopefully, my prayer is that here at St. Paul's, we are fostering an environment where questions are welcomed. That this is a place where we have a faith that stands up to close scrutiny. That this is a place where we get to engage our hearts and our minds, and we work, they work together to help us understand who God is and how God wants us to live in the world. Today, the last in our sermon series, I just want to take a moment to discuss, discuss one more hurdle that a lot of people encounter as they have faith in God, a hurdle that I really wish we could get rid of because it is the most difficult and the most embarrassing of them all, one of the biggest hurdles to people believing in the, the Christian faith. One of the things that causes the most doubt in Jesus Christ is the behavior of other Christians. See, we have to admit in a whole host of ways over very many centuries, Christian people have failed to act like Christian people. It's happened in small ways, like the moment that a new person enters the sanctuary for the first time, selects a pew in which to sit, and minutes later some stalwart church member is leaning over them saying, you are sitting in my seat. <laughs> it's a little cliche, that story, but it actually happens. Many of you are very attached to your pews. <laughs> or the young parent who has a squealing baby and has someone turn around and stage whisper to them, you know there's a nursery upstairs. See, time and again, we fail in the church to be kind to one another. We fail to offer love to one another. We fail to offer the kind of welcome and inclusion that we see from Jesus again and again. We screw it up. And when we do that, we create a hurdle for other people to find a home in church. And sometimes we create such a hurdle that people find they don't believe in God at all. But even more than the occasional grumpy person in a sanctuary, Christians have failed, just failed, to follow the teachings of Jesus. Or they've twisted his teaching in such a way that has justified their violence or abuse or even genocide. I mean, the fact that every, probably almost every slave owner in pre-Civil War America would have called themselves a Bible-believing Christian, that's a terrible thing. The fact that churches became sites of segregation and exclusion, that's another terrible thing. But I think the worst thing, probably, is that plenty of American preachers for centuries stood in pulpits and preached a gospel that allowed or even encouraged humans to own one another as property. Now that is antithetical to the Jesus that I know and love. And this idea that God could somehow be okay with a person being enslaved, tortured, kept in fear, worked to death simply for the profit of another person, if we stop and think about that, it, it's horrifying to me. And it makes me wonder, how do I make sure that I never read the Bible in such a twisted way? or from a slightly later period in U.S. history. We have the example of Christians being nothing like Christ when we look at Indian boarding schools. Just three weeks ago, perhaps you saw in the news, a site of a former boarding school in British Columbia using uh, ground-penetrating radar, they found the unmarked graves of 215 children that they did not know were there. Native American children, or First Nations children as they're called in Canada, 
These are children that were forcibly removed from their home, stripped of their culture, educated in these boarding schools from 1870s to the 1960s. And this most recent discovery was in Canada, but no doubt, no doubt there are similar graveyards to be found in the United States where children died of disease and overcrowding and likely abuse and their parents, their families were never told. We know that hundreds of thousands of, indi of indigenous children were forced into these schools, forbidden to speak their native languages, forced to dress and eat and pray like their white teachers, and the point of these schools was to remove any trace of Native American culture, to, as one person said, kill the Indian to save the man. And you all, almost all of these schools were run by churches, by churches often overseen by preachers. All of the children were forced to convert to Christianity. Now, when you are being told about a God by the same man who's beating you, who's forcing you to work for no pay, who's removed you from your parents' home and forbids you from seeing any of your extended family, what kind of image are you going to develop about that God? Even thinking about it now, I ask, how in the world could the people who founded and taught in those boarding schools, how could they believe in the same Jesus that I do? If their behavior is what it means to be Christian, I'm not even sure I want to be. So the examples of slaveholders and, and Indian boarding schools, those are not the first examples of Christians behaving in a way that showed no honor to Christ, and they are not the last examples we could sit here and come up with dozens of more examples if we took a little time to reflect. And when we add up all that evidence for Christians who have failed to love God and neighbor, it can quickly become overwhelming to us. It can cause serious doubt about faith, about the Bible, about the saving love of God. And it is a reminder to us that though doubt can be healthy, doubt can even be helpful, it can also be dangerous and they can be destructive if we don't put brakes on it, if we don't put boundaries around it. This is where our scripture for the day comes in. This is just one of a few places in the writings of the early church where doubt is addressed directly, and, and what the writer of the letter of James says is basically, don't let your doubts get carried away. Don't let them get carried away. He gives us this image that one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You think about if we're the wave and doubt is the wind, the bigger the wind, the more it pushes on the water, the bigger the wave becomes until eventually it's so unstable, it crashes down on itself. Our doubts can wipe us out. James says those who are taken over by doubt, they're double-minded and they're unstable. And he reminds us that if we try to pray with a mind filled with doubt, it's really not a good way to build a relationship with God. He's saying unchecked doubt is not healthy for our faith. So if we spend all of our time focusing on the holes and the questions and the places where Christianity has gone wrong, we're going to find ourselves eventually with nothing left with which we can believe. So, if we don't want to be like that wave crashing in on itself, what do we do about crappy Christians? Or worse than crappy, the ones that were violent and destructive and abusive. Well, I think we condemn what they did, or even today what they do. 
We say strongly and boldly whenever we can that their actions do not represent the Jesus we know and love. And we say they can't justify what they did with a Bible that we read and follow. We say they were wrong. And they were doubly wrong or triply wrong to do what they did in the name of God. And then we point out to the world and we point out to ourselves the thousands of examples we have of Christian people who helped instead of hurt who served instead of oppressed. We tell and remember the stories of people that we know and people in history who worked to love and heal and save in the name of Jesus. People like the abolitionists in the North and all those who worked the Underground Railroad to help enslaved people get to freedom, often motivated by their, to risk their own lives because of their Christian faith. We point to missionaries to Native American people who respected their culture, missionaries who were kind and generous, who trained and are training indigenous leaders even now in helping establish places like our Native American United Methodist churches. We tell the awful stories of the past with honesty so we don't forget the evil that can be done, but we remind ourselves that those evils people do not speak for our faith. Do I wish that we had a Christianity that was so robust, no one could ever twist its teaching, no one could ever use it to abuse or hurt other human beings? Of course I wish for that, but the powers of greed and pride and fear are so strong in the world, and our Bible is not bulletproof against them. Does that solve all our doubts? No, (laughs) I don't think so. Doubt's going to always play some role in our faith life, hopefully a small one, hopefully not anything that becomes chronic or debilitating, but our faith, it's not static. It's not like an unchanging stone. It's a living relationship. It's a relationship with God. So writer Philip Yancey, he says that that means our faith has this wide variety of feelings over time, just like every relationship. He says feelings directly, deeply affect every relationship. He says, for example, I've been married for decades. Name any feeling, good or bad, and I've probably had that feeling toward my wife. Yet my commitment to marriage binds me to her regardless of the feeling in the moment. He says, I confess there are also times when I have to act if, as if I love her. Just don't tell her when that happens, okay? But I have to act as if I love her when the feeling lags, and that's normal. That's normal in any long-term relationship. That's normal with our relationship with God as well. So what do we do? If we're being honest about all these ways that our faith can be difficult, that doubt can nag at us, what do we do? We who want to follow Jesus, we who want to love God, we who want to have this robust and life-changing faith in the one who saves us, what do we do? We just keep going. We just keep going. We keep praying, we keep reading the Bible, we keep asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us, and we trust that the faith that has shaped the lives of untold millions, it will be sturdy enough, it will be sturdy enough to save us, even here, even now. The writer Kathleen Norris talks about an article she found once detailing this argument between a seminary student and an Orthodox priest at Yale University. The priest had given a presentation on the Christian creeds. Now, the creeds are a really important part of our church history, but they're also a stumbling block for a lot of modern people. Some of you may know the creeds by heart. I suspect many of us do not. 
So the priest, he was probably talking about things like the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Or probably the Nicene Creed, actually an even more important creed from the fourth century. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. So many theological fights and death threats over the words in that creed. Okay, back to Yale Divinity. The seminary student, he he asked about doubt. He said, what can one do when one finds it impossible to affirm certain tenets of the creed? And the priest said, well, you just say it. It's not that hard to master. With a little effort, most can learn it by heart. And Norris says, the student, apparently feeling he'd been misunderstood, asked with exasperation, but what am I to do when I have difficulty affirming parts of the creed, like the virgin birth? And he got the same response. You just say it particularly when you have difficulty believing it, you just keep saying it. It will come to you eventually. To which the student raised his voice. How can I with integrity affirm a creed in which I do not believe? And the priest replied, it is not your creed, it is our creed, meaning the creed of the entire Christian church. And Norris says, I can picture the priest shrugging as only the Orthodox can shrug carrying so lightly the thousand-plus years of the liturgical tradition, and saying, eventually it may come to you. For some, it takes longer than for others. My challenge for you this week is to talk to someone, to find someone and talk to them about what it is that gives you faith. Talk to them about the parts of your faith that are the easiest for you to believe, What is it that provides the bedrock of your faith in Jesus? What is it that brings you back to center again and again? Share with someone you trust what keeps you from being tossed around on a sea of doubt like a wave pushed by the wind. What reminds you, what is it that grounds you again and again in God's love? And then say thanks to God for the gift of that faith.